0: We've reached a milestone. We're two-thirds of the way through, so we're slowly closing in on it. Psalm 100, a very well-known Psalm. Follow as I read. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He who hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people. And the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Notice the inscription it is called a psalm of praise. Some of you may say, Well, I thought they're all psalms of praise. Well, they almost all are. But it is the only one that has this particular inscription of all the psalms. It's the only one given this. And the word praise here probably would be better translated thanksgiving. It is a psalm of thankfulness and praise to God. It has been a favorite with God's people for generation after generation. As I mentioned, the song uh, that we sing is Scottish in uh, origin of the words being set to this tune. The tune, however goes back to the 1551 version of the Geneva Psalter. Now let that sink in, the antiquity of what we sang. 500 almost 500 years ago, in Calvin's Geneva, this was placed in the songbook and it has been sung almost continuously since then. One of the renovations, one of the reformations that Calvin did at Geneva, was introducing the idea of congregational singing. As strange as it seems to us, it really wasn't until the Reformation that God's people sang together congregationally. Generally, uh, there might be the priest or the, the choir boys uh, chanting something or that kind of thing, but it was Luther and later Calvin that reintroduced the notion of him singing in the churches, and this was one of the favorites. It's called the Old Hundred, because this hundredth psalm is said to it. If you were in Scotland and said, let's stand up and sing the Old Hundred, they would all know exactly what you mean. Well, let's look at it in detail. First of all, I want you to notice that the first two verses of this psalm is what we would call a call to worship, or perhaps a summons to worship. Notice the commands, the words that are being emphasized here. First of all, to make A joyful noise, to serve the Lord with gladness, to come. Notice the commands, to praise, to serve, and to come. And then notice the scope of the command. Who is to do this? Notice in the first verse, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. Notice that the psalm scope goes far beyond the land of Israel, far beyond the people of uh, Moses' day or even David's day that all the earth is commanded to summon, to come, and to praise God. Notice the character of the command. And by that I mean the the character of our heart that we're to have when we obey this. We are to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The word noise here means not just racket, but, but celebrate. It, it would be like uh, in the, the military, hip, hip, hooray. It's a cheer. Make a joyful cheer unto the Lord. Notice in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. It's not just gritting your teeth and biting your tongue and gutting your way through it, but you are enjoying, you are delighting in serving Him. And then notice, to come before His presence with singing. As I pointed out, Christianity and the worship of God in Scripture is one one of the ways... That we are to worship God is through the use of music, through singing, through vocal music. Again, I am not that familiar with the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus. I know they have their weird chants, you know, their call to prayers and so forth. But uh, as far as I know, Christianity is unique in its use of music in the in the praise of God. It is natural for Christ's people to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And Paul exhorts us to do precisely that. I just can't hardly imagine hearing a Buddhist get up and say, Buddha, 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 there's just something about that name. I don't think it happens, folks, or Mohammed or anything else. It's very natural for us, however, who are Christians to sing and especially to sing the praises of our Lord and Savior. Here we have in these first two verses answered for us who should praise and how we should praise. Who should praise? All lands. How should we praise? Singing, joy, gladness. But then in the next section in verse 3 we have the answer to another question, not just who should praise and how we should praise, but why we should praise. And here is where I think the psalm gets interesting. Notice that we are to know why we're praising. Notice the emphasis here on know ye that the Lord, He's God. What does that mean? Does it mean to know that the Lord, He is God? Somebody make a stab at that? I see you shaking your head, Barry. You got an answer? Huh? What's that? Sovereign. He's sovereign. Notice the word Lord, if you're reading out of the King James, is in those little caps, which means that it is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah as we pronounce it. And so it is to say that Jehovah, which is the covenant name of God to Israel, He is God. In other words, He's not trying to be God, he's not hoping you'll let him be God, he's God, he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, notice other nations had their gods, but their gods were limited in their scope, perhaps they ruled over a particular uh, geographical area, perhaps in some cases like Neptune, he ruled in the sea, but as long as you're not in the sea, you're okay, you don't have to worry about old Neptune, because he can't get you, he's limited to the sea, But notice in our case that the God that we worship is an unlimited, he is universally sovereign. Notice the things that we recognize about our God. This God whose name is Yahweh, Jehovah. uh, Yahweh being the contraction of that phrase, I am that I am. The self-existent one. Notice three things about this God. First of all, it's he who made us and not we ourselves. The first primary relationship that we have with this God is the fact that He is our Maker, the fact that He is our Creator. In fact, all our duties towards God flow from that fact, and that is why the fact of God being the Creator is so important to our understanding of our relationship with God. If God made us, then that means He didn't ask our help. Notice the emphasis here, not we ourselves. Now, why would you add that? Why wouldn't it be enough to simply say, well, it's he who made us? I mean, who would ever think that we made ourselves? But notice that the emphasis here is being placed on the fact that not only is it God who made us, but you didn't make yourself. You didn't make yourself. You didn't help in the process. You didn't contribute. It was not a synergism. Do you know the word synergy is a cooperation? You didn't cooperate with God, and God didn't even didn't even ask your permission when He made you. Well, He didn't ask my permission. Maybe he asked yours. But uh, you ever remember God asking if you'd like to be born? Do, do you ever remember asking uh, God uh, to make sure you were born to uh, a particular race, in a particular place, in a particular economic stratus? You know, I want to be born to the rich people. I want to be born in a high society. Uh, God didn't ask us. Notice that it is He who has formed us, and He has formed us according to His own will, according to His own pleasure. And our lot in this life is that lot that has been assigned to us. The life we have is in fact a gift from God. God has loaned us this life. It is not ours. We didn't make it. It is bestowed upon us. And therefore, He being our Maker, what does this mean? It means that this life that I have is designed for Him. He's not making Himself for me. He's making me for Him. That's a no-brainer. I, I was showing our kids, this was years ago, back when computers were still pretty primitive, they have these little graphic things called sprites. A sprite isn't a drink. It's it's like a little, uh, like a, in this case, the Sprite we were playing with was an airplane. Made an airplane Sprite. And I was showing it, Tonya and Kevin, Jessica wasn't old enough, but I was showing them how we could get, we could write a program to make this airplane go back and forth across the screen. Well, that was okay for about 30 seconds. Then we decided to make another Sprite, which is a little ship, and we put it down here at the bottom, and it's a ship going back and forth on the water. So you got the airplane going back and forth up here, the ship going back and forth up here. Well, then we decide let's, let's modify the program a little bit. Let's get it where we can drop some bombs out of the airplane and try to blow up the ship going back and forth. You know, you just kept elaborating on this very primitive computer game. But I was uh, just thinking, what if one day I'm playing with my game and the little sprite, this little blip on the screen Begins to say to me, I don't like you. And I say, well, why don't you like me? Well, you did not make me fast. You made me too slow. You didn't give me as many bombs as you gave the other, the other airplane. So I think you're an evil person. What do you suppose I would say to the blip on the screen? Yeah, little blip. That's exactly it. Little blip. You exist because I made you. I made you for my pleasure. And if it gives me pleasure to blow you to smithereens, what business is of that of yours? You are here for me. I am not here for you. That is fundamental. And that is what we're dealing with when we say that God is the one who made us and we didn't make ourselves. He is our namer. You ever notice in the account of creation, He's the one who names Adam isn't it interesting that in Scripture, when you name something, it shows your sovereignty or your hegemony, your rule over something. Remember, Adam named the animals. He also named his wife. Just throw that throw that in there for good measure. But notice that this sets the order. If you name something, and and by the way, how many of you named your kids? They didn't name themselves. They may have changed their name. They may have liked the name you gave them. But uh, at the end of the day, you're the ones who named them, didn't you? Notice that this shows the order, the, the pecking order, so to speak. Who names someone shows who is in authority over them. And notice here that it is God who in creation gives Adam his name, Adam. He's naming him. He is showing who's in charge, who is naming who here. We don't name God. God was the one who disclosed His name to Moses, but Moses didn't name Him. He learned God's name, but He didn't name Him. Okay? So notice what all of this implies. So first of all, that's the primary relationship, is that God is our Maker. The second one is that we are His people. We're His people. I've told you that there is this covenant formula throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that says this, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We sing that, don't we? Jeremiah 24, 7. They shall be my God. I will be their God. I'll get it right. And they shall be my people. In other words, to call someone the people of God is more than simply them being the creation of, of God To call them God's people means that they're in a covenant relationship with God. In other words, this is a narrower thing than simply, he's made, He made everybody, but not everybody was considered His people. He entered into a relationship with Israel, says, I'll be their God and they will be my people. Notice that we are His people not only like Israel by creation, but also by redemption. He is the one who brought us out of our bondage, our captivity, like He did Israel. And so we we have a double relationship with God. He's not only the one who made us and formed us, He's the one who has redeemed us. We have two... I, I remember the old story. It's one of those little tear-jerking things they told back in Southern Baptist churches, you know, to get you weeping and wailing so everybody come down the aisle. But anyway, uh, about the little boy that went to the store and he kept seeing this boat in the window, sailboat in the window. He, you heard it. I imagine everybody has. If you've ever been to Southern Baptist Church, you've heard this story. Anyway, he sees this little sailboat in the, the window. And um, and uh, so anyway, one day uh, he finally saved up enough money to buy a sailboat. Well, he went down to the lake, and he was selling a sailboat. And the wind got a hold of it and blew it away, and he couldn't find it. And so uh, anyway... One day he was walking back by that store, and here that sailboat is in the window again. He goes in and says to the owner, that's, that's my sailboat. And the guy says, well, wait a minute. A fellow brought that in the other day, and I bought it from him. And you want that sailboat? You guys to pay me for it. So he had to save up money again and bought the same sailboat. And he said, you were my sailboat once. I lost you, and now I've had to buy you back again. I, I don't know, it seemed like much more emotional than that when I was a little kid. I mean, you know, losing a sailboat was a big deal. But but the point being is that the the point that the illustration is supposed to make is that we are doubly gods. We're His by creation. He made us, and now He has... I think I goofed. I think I didn't tell the story the right way. But you get the picture. You get the picture. All right. He had to buy us back. We made us, formed us. We fail into sin, and He is our Redeemer as well as our Maker. And then thirdly, notice the third relationship that we have with our God is that we are the sheep of His pasture. If you, you know in Scripture the idea of being God's sheep is a favorite metaphor. It is the heart and soul of what Psalm 23 is all about, where David said, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. It is uh, used over in Ezekiel 34, the last uh, verse there. He's been talking about sheep, shepherds, unfaithful shepherds, and he's going to give them a, a faithful shepherd to take the place of these unfaithful shepherds. And the very last verse of that chapter says, and you, my, you, you're, you're sheep, but you're my people. In other words, he makes it clear that we're not really talking about four-legged sheep. We're talking about God's people. And notice that the progression here We have gone from God being our maker to being our redeemer. And now we see God as our sustainer, as our keeper. Which is really what being a shepherd is all about. Being the relationship that sheep have to their shepherd. It is the shepherd that cares for the sheep, tends the sheep, feeds the sheep, makes sure that the needs of the sheep are met. And of course, as I've told you on many occasions, my experience with sheep Leaves me no doubt why Jesus used sheep to illustrate us. You know, he didn't use thoroughbred horses. He didn't use buffalo. He used sheep. Because sheep are dumb, ignorant, helpless. They stink. I <laughs> just, you want me to keep going? <laughs> they have a death wish. My sheep used to stay up late at night trying to figure out how they're going to die on me the next day. <laughs> they could figure out. They were very, shall we say, in, uh, inventive when it came to the way they were going to die on me the next day. It's like they were just destined to die. They they had it in their crotch. They were, crotch? Crop. <laughs> One of those. Okay. <laughs> One of those. But they just had it. <laughs> they were driven to die. And that's just how helpless these sheep are. Yeah, yeah, you remember that one, won't you? Okay. But uh so notice the the very I dare I'm getting worried about what I'm gonna say next. The very the very pregnant way here that uh this is unfolded to us, that God is more than just one thing to us. He's our Maker, He's our Redeemer, and He is Our keeper, He is our shepherd. And so, all of these being the reasons why we are to worship Him. Why we're to come praising Him, rejoicing, singing. And notice that that means that our praise of God is to be knowledgeable praise. We are not just mouthing things. We're not just going through some ritual. We're holding our mouth right because everybody else is holding their mouth right or we're, we're, we're burning a candle because everybody else burn, we don't know why, it's just religious to burn a candle everybody else is burning a candle so we're burning notice that our worship of God is to be knowledgeable worship we ascribe him praise because we realize the relationship that we sustain to him our maker, our redeemer our keeper we've got a lot to be thankful for we're sheep grazing on His land, in His pasture, eating His grass, drinking His water, breathing His air. we got a lot to be thankful for. And so we're to come into His presence with thanksgiving. And then notice verse 4. Notice that here we see a summons to what I would call corporate praise. And by corporate praise, I mean not just as individuals, but as a body of Believers, um, we who have been out there in the pasture uh, grazing as individual sheep are then brought together at times into the pen, into the fold. We flock together. Uh, my sheep, I'd let them out in the morning. They'd scatter all over the pasture. But when it comes time to go back in the barn, gather them all together, and they flock together, they very compact herd them into the corral, hopefully, and sooner or later get them to go in the barn. Not always an easy task. But one thing about sheep is that their very nature, well, they've got a lot of natures, but one of the nature is that they flock. They, when there's danger or when they're heading to the barn, uh, anything like that, they will naturally gravitate together and become a very compacted flock of sheep. It's really amazing to see just how you got all these sheep scattered everywhere and then let the dog get after them. It's amazing how tight they can get. Because everybody's trying to get to the middle of the flock, you see. That's your safety is in the middle. It doesn't really matter how fast you can run as long as you're on the inside of the bunch. The dog or the wolf, he's going to get the one on the outside. So everybody's trying to get to the middle of the flock. And boy, they can get tight at times well notice that the same thing is true of God's sheep we may have lone wolves wolves but we don't have lone sheep in fact if you got a lone sheep generally something wrong with the sheep that's every time in my experience when I had a lone sheep all the other sheep are flocked together and there's that one sheep out yonder there's generally something wrong with that sheep they're either having a lamb they're sick they're injured They can't get up, but there's something wrong with the sheep that won't flock together with the other sheep. Well, guess what? When it comes to God's sheep, there's something wrong with the sheep that won't flock together with other sheep. There's something about being part of the people of God that we have a phileo or a family relationship with one another. And as we saw in our study in 1 John in particular, that one of the evidences of being born of God is that we love the brethren. We want to be around God's people. We want to assemble with one another. And no wonder then Hebrews warns us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. In fact, one of the first signs of apostasy, and if you'll look into Hebrews 10 there, you'll see that immediately following that warning, not to forsake the assembling of the saints together, comes a warning not to fall away, not to apostatize. One of the great passages on apostasy immediately follows that verse because usually there's a connection between the two if i'm getting out of sorts with the lord i don't particularly want to be around his people i don't want them to remind me i don't want them i don't want to hear about what god's done for them i want to be out there on my own i want to go back out there with the wolves And so that is generally a warning sign and notice here that we are talking about the fact that we are to enter verse 4 into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Now we're talking about coming together corporately with the people of God and assembling together. Now notice that we come through the gate. Back there in John 10 where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. You remember, first of all, before he told us that, he told us that there's a gate. And who's the gate? He is. He said, Well, man, I thought he's the shepherd. Well, he is. Notice he's the gate, he's the shepherd. <laughs> it's a very uh, flexible illustration. But what do you mean by the gate? He's the one by whom we come and enter into the presence of God to worship him. When God's people flock together, To come together in worship, we all enter through the gate. We come into His courts, into His courtyard, into His presence, and we come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the the means, He's the avenue that we approach God with. And so we are to do what when we come together? We're to be thankful again unto Him and bless His name. What does it mean to bless God? you ever thought about that? How would you define it? Yeah, Caleb. Oh, you didn't know what it meant. Well, here I'm looking to you for an answer, and you're you know better than the rest of us, you know. Okay. What what would you say? How would you define if you're supposed to bless God? Well, let me ask you this: What does God do when He blesses you? Shows favor looks favorably upon you. Now notice it's sort of like we love him because he first loved us and here we're to bless him because he first blessed us. We think of what he has blessed us with, His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, all of these benefits. And then that then when we get to thinking about how then do we bless God, Gets a little more difficult, doesn't it? Because we think of his blessing towards us as things. Things that he's given us. Whereas in our case, there's nothing that we can give God that he needs, that he doesn't already have. But in blessing God, what we do is simply recognize the kind of God that he is when we bless His holy name, we are basically exalting and glorifying His character, the kind of God that He is. We are vocally, visibly, expressing our approval, our praise of who God is, His character, His person, and what He does. Whatever... He does. If he's God, then whatever he does, we are to bless him. I'm thinking of Job. Whether God gives us or whether God takes away, what did Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, what does he mean by that? In other words, whatever God does to me or with me, he's still to be blessed. In other words, I will not say one bad word. Remember, his wife came to him, says, "Curse God and die." So, to bless is the opposite of curse. To curse is to invoke evil on someone. To bless is to express favor, goodness towards someone. And so, in whatever befalls us, we are constantly to be blessing the name of our God. I remember an old story. Maybe I can tell this one better than the last one, of a this African chief, this African king, who had a a friend of his, a guy, a kid, another guy he had grown up with, that was his rifle bearer. When he go out hunt on safari, this guy would always carry his rifle for him. And one day, the king was uh, getting ready to shoot some wild game, and he pulled the trigger, and the thing blew up in his face and blew his thumb off. His rifle bearer had somehow managed to misload the, the rifle. And the king got so mad at the one, this rifle bearer, this guy who was his friend, that he, and, and oh, I've, I've already goofed it up. I, <laughs> this, this rifle bearer, the, the peculiar thing about him is that he had this expression, no matter what happened, he'd say, it's good, it's good. It's good. So the king pulls the trigger, blows his thumb off, and this guy says, it's good, it's good. And the king gets so mad at him that he takes his friend and throws him in prison, leaves him there to rot, and he gets him a new rifle bearer. Well, about a year later, he's out hunting again. This time, however, he and his rifle bearer are captured by a bunch of cannibals. The first day, they string up and cook the rifle bearer, and they eat him. The next day they get ready to string up and eat the king and they notice he's missing a thumb. And in this particular cannibalistic tribe to eat somebody, it's like a sacrifice that you offer there at the temple. They have to be whole. They have to be complete. They have to be perfect. So they let the king go. And so the king remembers that his friend who, when he blew his finger off, said it's good that he's thrown his friend in prison. And so he goes to the prison to release his friend. And the friend says, it's good. He said, but I put you in prison for a year. You've been in here with the rats and the maggots and the lice. He said, but it's good, it's good. He said, how could that be good? He says, because if that hadn't happened, I'd have been with you and they'd have eaten me. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they would (laughs) have. I would have been the one they ate. So all of it worked together for good. It's good. So that's what it means to bless the name of God. And then lastly, a summons to understand the name that we bless. Notice, here's the character of this God that we bless. He's good. He's good. To be good is different from being right or just. I mean, God is righteous. God is just. He always does what's right. But there's a sense in which to be good goes beyond just what is right and just. You remember Jesus, it says in the Gospels, that He healed the sick, He cast demons out of the demonic. He went around doing good. In other words, there was no No, no, there was no law that said he had to go do all that. In fact, we find times that sick folks and demoniacs and lepers were were just hounding him day and night, so much so that he couldn't even find any time to rest. There, There was no, there was nothing. You could still be just, you see, and righteous and not do such a thing. But our Lord was not just right, he was good. Sometimes we can be so right, we forget to be good. A lot of us are that way. We've got such a strong sense of what is right and wrong, and we know we're right, that we forget to be good. There's something beyond being right. And that our Lord was not just righteous, He was good. Secondly, He's merciful. He's merciful. Mercy is compassion. It is to pity Us, it is to see us in our ruined, lost condition and be moved with compassion. It's to be, it's to feel something for those who are suffering, and so it is that we see that in our Lord, don't we? That not only was He good, He was merciful. How many times do we see him moved with compassion as he would gaze upon the, the multitudes? I'm thinking of the one passage where he looked out upon the crowds and he, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he said. Sheep without a shepherd are not going to live very long. Not going to do well. And so he had pity. He took compassion on the multitudes. Notice our God is a good God. Secondly, he's a piteous merciful God and thirdly his truth endures he's a faithful God to say that your truth endures means that you can count on your word that what he has sworn what he has spoken what he has promised you can take to the bank and notice that these things it's not just he's going to be good for a little while and his mercy is going to be there for a day or so and his truth is going to endure for one generation But that these qualities of God for which we are to bless and praise Him are eternal qualities. They're ingrained into His eternal character. And the God who is piteous today will be piteous to us tomorrow. He's merciful today. He'll be merciful tomorrow. He's truthful today. You can bet your life on His Word. You can trust Him to keep His Word tomorrow. There is no shadow of changing with our God. And for those reasons, we... Or summon, let's go back through this, summon to worship him, verses 1 and 2. Summon to worship him in a knowledgeable way. We know something about this God that we worship. I'm thinking about Athens. You Remember they had the altar to the unknown God. They had no clue. <laughs> they just prayed the missed one. so we got us an altar to this unknown God. And Well, what's he like? We don't know. What's his name? We don't know. Notice here, we are to worship God knowing this God, and then thirdly, the summons to corporate praise that we're not to worship Him simply individually, but gathering together with his people approaching the, his, his his court or entering into his court, coming through the gate, and then fourthly, we're to come and praise him because we understand his character. we know his name. we know his name, it's Yahweh. But we also know his name in the sense that we know the character of this God that we're coming to praise. All right. I'll stop there. It's a good it's a short one, but it's a good one.